Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Music is truly a universal language. A great songwriter can evoke a myriad of emotions with just a few choice words and create a melody that will stay with us for the rest of our lives. Lou Rodeo is one of Canada's most beloved bands, and singer-songwriter Jim Cuddy has contributed more than his fair share of music to a songbook that will stay with us for generations. Once I realized I was going to sing these songs over and over and over again, I thought, I have to work more on the stories. I have to go deeper into these stories. People connect to what they want to connect to, and and it's, it's often not necessarily what you want them to connect, connect to. So all I can do is is write my little novellas, and and put them out there. In 1993, after releasing four consecutive platinum albums, Lou Rodeo gathered at guitarist Greg Keeler's farm to record what was supposed to be an acoustic EP to be released while the band took a break from touring. Instead, the project turned into a full album called Five Days in July, and went on to become the most successful album of the band's career. Contributing to that success was the album's opening track and single, Five Days in May. I caught up with Jim Cuddy at Blue Rodeo Studio in downtown Toronto, where we sat on an old couch and talked about songwriting. In particular, I wanted to talk about Five Days in May, whose opening line, They Met in a Hurricane, drags us into the heart of the song. I remember from long ago, whether this is the right quote or not, that John Hyatt said, the very first line of your song is the most important line of the, and it came to me, this, they met in a hurricane. And, uh, and so then it just went from there, this idea of love is first sight and, and, and two people um, disappearing into the ether at the end of the song and not, not having any idea whether they lasted or not. And it was at a time for our band when we were writing a bunch of songs to allow for a lot of soloing. And I felt that that one was going to be a different uh, basis, platform for us because it was more mellow. And it didn't, usually the soloing songs were high grinders. They had a lot, you know, a lot of energy and electric. And this one had a, had a nicer uh, acoustic bass to it. And it would be good to have a, a big piano solo, a guitar solo. Well, I mean, the guitar solo, I guess it wasn't really planned. A lot, of the, a lot of the execution of the song wasn't planned because it happened spontaneously in Greg's living room at his farm. And I think when we finished that song, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were just playing along, and Greg started to do this crazy stuff, and we just followed him. Was it the lyrics that started, or did you have some music, did you have something on the guitar already that you were kind of working off of? That one is pretty, but they were pretty simultaneous. So that, so the, the, the I knew going in that they met in a hurricane um, would be the first line. And, and then I just, you, you have to appreciate that, <laughs> that so much. So much, so much of songwriting is this crazy repetition, this almost comatose repetition, just over and over and over, and very pleasant. Like I could play something for, I could play the same pattern for an hour, and I'm sure that anybody in the room would would start to have an epileptic fit. But I, it just it mesmerizes me, and I just play it, and then the story is occurring to me, and I'm moving it forward line by line, and then then I start recording and doing all this stuff, but just endless repetition. So that one I tried to move the, uh, I had a verse, um, so, and I can never recite my own lyrics. I know the first line, but I, I had the verse before I knew where I was going to go in, in the chorus. But I knew I wanted the chorus to go to a major chord and be bright and, and stand up. 
So, and the, and the lyrics have to, to mirror that. And they have to be about, if there's, if there's something indefinite in the, in the minor chord pattern of the verse, there has to be something definite and, and stated in the chorus. So the chorus is more about, this can happen. Sometimes the world works for you. And, and so that's, I knew where I was going with it. So um, if you are focused on uh, starting the song with a great first line, does that first line then tell you what the story will be? And how do you figure out what the resolution to the story is? Well, that's, that's, that's the whole uh, question. I still realize that, that the beginning of that song put you right in the conversation. So all of a sudden you, were, you, were, you picked up the phone and you listened to this conversation. So, yes, I realize this is somebody coming back to... Talk to somebody that had circumstances been different. They may have been talking to them across the dinner table, but instead they're calling them because they're around the corner. And so I knew that that story was, could unfold. But it takes quite a while to, you have to figure out why they, didn't, why they weren't together. And those are decisions. I mean... You, you imagine a story. So the, the reasons they're not together, together definitely differ from the genesis of the story. The genesis of the story has real people, but the reasons they're not together in the song are, are imagined. So I, again, it's just, I, I mean, we're in my place. Like I sit here and I just go over and over and over it. And so if it's, hey, it's me. I can't, why can't I remember the lyrics? What a big surprise. Hey, it's me, what a big surprise. Calling you up from a restaurant around the bend. So I might do that. And they'll go, what does he say next? You know, what's, what do you say? And, and then I just keep the conversation going. And then at some point, you know, like any long conversation, it has to change. It, has, it, it can't just be about, you can't just go skirt along the surface. You have to now get down and say, you know, I, I admire you for moving on. And I've watched all the things you've done. And, you know, and the implication, I've done nothing. <laughs> And, and I don't know, you just, again, you just, you have to be, I mean, to be a songwriter, I think you have to be very comfortable just walking through fields of imagination, just, just staying in there and imagining and, and being comfortable um, that this is, this is real, that, that you're somehow expressing something that's real and that needs to be put into a song. And that um, it's just, you know, so much of it's just time spent. I didn't know how that song, that, that song would end when I started it. So how much of the song changed when you brought it to Blue Rodeo to record? It changed a lot because it had a very different feel. It had more of a feel like a, like a hurricane <clears throat> because I wanted it for the soloists. And I didn't really honor the song enough. And uh, it wasn't working. And so I changed it to be like the picking pattern I, w I used when I was just writing the song. So I was just writing the song, and it was easier to play the picking pattern because <clears throat> I don't even know why I turned it to the, the... I mean, I think I did it in concession to the band, but it didn't really work that way. The, the, all the lyrics, the, the rhythm of the lyrics works with the picking pattern. It all kind of syncopates to, to that. So I really came back to where I had been because it didn't work with the band. So do you remember when the first time you guys played the song live and how the audience reacted to it? Would they have known the song? Was it before the record came out? It was before the record came out because we played it 
We played it that, that summer. We, we did the record in July, and then we played Ontario Place, and we played a lot of the record. And so that was brand new to people. And uh, it's hard to tell because we were popular enough at the time that people were accepting everything we did. And it was wildly hippie vibe on the stage. You know, we had all this junk on the stage. And, but I, I think my recollection, whether it's faulty or not, is that it was, it was very quickly accepted. It was very interesting with the record company because we had gone and done a whole bunch of, of um, demos. We'd just come off the Lost Together tour, which was our, our absolutely our highest volume level tour, which was terrible and exhausting. And uh, we wrote all these songs and half of them were electric, half of them were acoustic, and we decided to shelve the electric ones for now and just do the acoustic ones. So when we did the, the acoustic record, we had sold it to our partners as, this is just a, a sideline record. It just, this is just an interesting one, and we'll get back to what we normally do later. And it just had, it had a power because of the way it was done, because of the way it was recorded, that when you listen to it, it didn't sound like a, uh, like a secondary project. It sounded very big, and, and, and it was very moving. And so there was, everybody sort of came around to it, that it was, songs were good, and, and the sound was, the vibe was undeniable. So uh, I think that's what, that's what the audience felt too. The audience reaction just to the beginning of the song is always an incredible moment in a Blue Rodeo concert. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that you, you, you can't plan those things. You can't plan that there's, that there's going to be some memorable sonic way of opening a song that make people go, oh, they're going to play this one. I love this song. And so you hope, and it's nice. I mean, I always, I'm always playing the harmonica, so when people do react, I'm, I start to smile just instinctively. And it's not the easiest way to play the harmonica. When you smile, you let unnecessary air in. So, um, <clears throat> but it's, it's, it's a nice thing. And that was the first time I'd played harmonica. All those things. There was that, the recording of that record, I never played mandolin and I'd never played harmonica. I just learned because the song dictated that that's what it needed. So those were of my first toots on a, on a harmonica, let alone recorded. Well, let's, okay, so let's go back to when you started playing music. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you came, how music entered your life and you started playing? I grew up in a household where there was a lot of music. My mother had been a singer in, in college, and, and she always liked singing. And my dad liked, liked music, so that we always had records. And uh, my uncle was a jazz pianist, and so whenever those parties would happen, or anytime they were all together, my uncle would play, you know, the American Songbook, and my mother would sing. And, and I always loved it. My grandmother was a singer. None of that was, was particularly my style, but I... I I was always around music. And then, of course, I'm a child of the 60s. So there's that truly incredible thing that happened when we were, I guess, uh, 64. I would, have been, I would have been eight or nine. And the Beatles came on TV. And all of a sudden, this whole world of music, was, which was so exciting, came to me. And, and so... I always imagined myself as a Beatle or we, you know, we'd make fake guitars and play. And I got a guitar when I was 10 because I was also really seriously into cowboy music. I really love cowboys and, 
There's a lot of music in cowboys, you know, cowboy movies and stuff, Roy Rogers and Burl Ives. And, and I just, whew, I love that stuff. Still do. Still do. And so I got a guitar and that was an era where there was just, it was just all around you. You know, I mean, I learned a lot of corny songs to begin with, but I learned House of the Rising Sun because the animals had it. And it was easy to do that. Dun, 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 dun. And then I just, I just kept kept going with music through high school, but it was always a private endeavor. I maybe played for friends at parties, but I didn't, uh, wasn't that comfortable with it. My mother would get me to play for her friends. So that was one thing. And, and believe it or not, it was helpful, you know, because super intimidating, but they're already, they're all, what are they gonna say? That was horrible. You know, they're always encouraging. And, uh, and then in university, I started to play a lot. I go to the folk clubs, I was not really a big 70s rock fan. I wasn't, I wasn't super into Led Zeppelin and all that kind of stuff. That The era for me had sort of passed. And I, and I was in university. I started to listen to Jackson Brown and the Eagles and, and get into this folk rock, country rock stuff. And then Jerry Jeff Walker and, and the burritos and all this kind of stuff. And that was what really took me along. And then after, after I, I, I left university, I, um, I decided I would just devote one year to music because I just loved music and I didn't want to, I felt like as soon as whatever I did next, I felt like that was going to be the end of pursuing music. So, and one year turned into blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and on from there. So when did you start writing your own songs? Pretty much from the beginning. When I was 10 or 11, I was writing something, but they'd be entirely imitative of something else. But when I was 15, I actually wrote a song and it was, it concerned high school issues, played it for, some some other students and it's horrible and high-minded and and you know pretentious but i i always i always felt like i could do it i i don't think i had any particular flair for it but i always felt like that was something i could do i <clears throat> i think people are drawn to to creation they they look at they look at a drawing and they think i, I could make my hands do that i couldn't i could never make my hands do a drawing but as as soon as i heard music and song construction. And especially when I sort of started to hone in on things that, you know, listening to the Beatles was great, but I never thought I could write a song like the Beatles. But listening to Jackson Brown, I thought, I can do that. And listening to folk stuff and listening to country stuff. So I always just felt like I could do it. And then it was, and then I was driven. You know, there's a, there's a guy at university named Walter McNee, who's it's now a super high up guy in MasterCard, but he's an amazing musician. And, uh, he was a great guitar player, and he knew all kinds of stuff that I wanted to know. And I would find out his schedule, and I would sit on his porch, and he'd come walking up the street from class, and he'd go, and he'd just roll his eyes like, oh, God. And I'd say, just show me one thing. Just take 10 minutes. Just show me one thing. All right, all right, all right. And I'd say, give me lessons. No, I'm too busy. And I'd be sitting on his porch again. <laughs> but I was really driven to learn, and I, and I had the time, and I really, really, really wanted to do it. I'm, I'm totally fascinated by lyrics. Maybe because, you know, putting chords together is easy. Putting words together is, I mean, to me, is the real art. And I'm just wondering, it's like you say, you listen to the Beatles and you say, I, I couldn't possibly do that, but you listen to Jackson Brown and I could probably do that. To me, I mean, later Beatles aside, but early Beatles, it's like, it's simple. Mm-hmm. But Jackson Brown is like, he's telling complex stories in his songs. 
Well, I don't know. That that's just what appealed to me, and I think that, you know, I was an English major, and and I I I instinctively understood the use of metaphors and similes, and how how you change, put words together to to mean something else. I I just that was something I instinctively was drawn to. I didn't, you know, nobody except Mozart and Bob Dylan know how to do it from the moment they're born. It, but most people have to learn it, and I would just take attempts at it. And I was very hard on myself recognizing what was imitative and what was real. And you know when you come up with something real. Look, when I'm writing songs, still to this day, I, I, I would say the, the amount of, 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 uh, of attention paid to lyrics compared to, uh, to music is, is 10 to 1. Ten, 10 times the amount of work put into lyrics and, and trying to create a coherent story and say what you want and try to say something in a way that you haven't said it before. Not people have, haven't said it before, but you haven't said it before. So it is something that's learned, and it's learned by listening to... Every time I listen to a new artist, first of all, I'm drawn by the, just by the sonics, just by the sound of the voice. And the, but then I'm drawn by what language they speak. You know, I, Jeff Tweedy was a big move forward because he used very conversational language. You know, if you come from the Bob Dylan crazy tumbling metaphor at school, all of a sudden if you, if you hear somebody using just common spoken language, but to great effect... That's interesting, and that starts working its way into your songs, and then you, you make your your language plainer, but but more direct. Like say something more direct, and so um, for me, there was a point at which, if I look at my early Blue Rodeo output, you know, we go back to the high fives. We were writing stylistically. I don't know why you love me. I don't know why you care. You know, blah blah blah. But the, the early part of the the Blue Rodeo. You know, I tried to write things that, that had underground was, was definitely about the deterioration of the Queen Street scene. Try was about, I don't know, it was just kind of about yearning and, and unsatisfied yearning, big part of rock. But once I realized I was going to sing these songs over and over and over again, I thought I have to work more on the stories. I have to go deeper into these stories. And I think that's what, that's what started to happen with well, it started to happen with Diamond Mine, but then it really started to happen with Casino onward. That those songs are, all of a sudden, they are about something. They're, when I sing Trust Yourself, I know exactly what it's about. It, it, it always comes back to me. And so that, that was a conscious change. And, uh, and again, just the, the lesson of repetition. Do you, do you feel that, you know, in the songwriting that you've done, as you say, since Casino, that because you have a clear idea of exactly what these stories are that you find that perhaps people are connecting more strongly to them, songs like Bad Timing, whatnot? Well, that's interesting because people connect to what they want to connect to. And, and it's, it's often not necessarily what you want them to connect, connect to. So all I can do is, is write my little novellas and, and put them out there. And I mean, if people relate to try as much as they do to bad timing, then that there's no uh, comparison in the work put into those two songs. Mm-hmm. Try was written to finish the song, and bad timing was written to say something, and it took time. And so, I'm not sure that that's the best test. I I would say that the the litmus test for me is how much it conjures up every time I sing it. You can imagine how many times I've sung bad timing. 
I mean, it's, it would be in the thousands. And it still conjures up a, a lot of, of the story of where it came from. And even sometimes that story is, 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 is now so entirely blended with imagination that it's not even really about the people it started to be about. But the story, as it's written, still is meaningful to me. So it still conjures up the story. And try, I'm, I'm always thinking about the high note. You know, here we go. <laughs> you know? So you talk about you coming into this room and working at it. You know, how much of it, how much of it is inspiration? Do you walk into the room with ideas or do you just come in here because you know you're doing a day's work and you, how, you know, at that point, how does it even begin? Right. I don't wait for inspiration. I, I, uh, I try to work my way towards inspiration. So I, I do it, um, it at a, you know, I, I will just come in here and close the doors. And there's a lot of fun stuff in here. There's pianos and, and there's uh, Wurlitzers and guitars. And, and uh, I'll just start. And, <clears throat> you know, I think that for me, doing this is, is fun. It's, it's, it's pleasure. And all I have to do is just put, a, put some restriction on myself. I say, you can't, can't leave here until you figure something out. And I've been doing that since I was 15. I've been sitting with a guitar. and Maybe when I was 15, I was trying to learn somebody else's song. And I thought, ugh, it's too hard. I'll just write my own version of this. But I've been doing that, sitting with a guitar and trying to, trying to reflect my imagination in songs for a long, long time. And if I, if I go, I mean, you know, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a bit of a, of a Protestant work ethic guy, but if I treat it like a job, then I, I usually can, can create something. And then once, once I have a toehold in something, then I can, then I just keep going. I just keep at it. And then, and then I, then it's, then it's completely 100% absorbing. And then by that point, then I'm walking into this room knowing what I'm going to do. And if I get tired of that, I'll sit down and maybe another song will come. And you have to write, especially if I'm writing my own, which I've done more recently than, than with Blue Rodeo. You've got to write them all. You've got to write 10 or 12 or 15 songs. Blue Rodeo, you know, six songs, come on. So, um, so I, I have to just keep generating a lot of ideas. I mean, I'm kind of at that point now. I have two songs on the go, and I realize that I know what it feels like to be 100% absorbed by it because I'm tapping my foot at night when I'm sleeping. I'm waking up anxious to get over here. And that hopefully will come, but I'm not at that stage yet. But I'm at the, I'm just at the sit in here, do some work, come up with something, move ahead. And I know I'm there because I, everything I'm seeing, I saw the stars play the other night and they played, they had this one little piano thing. I thought, That'll be a good start. <laughs> so I know I'm absorbing. I'm ready. I'm starting to absorb. I'm listening to lyrics and thinking. I'm not stealing. I'm just, I'm just using these little things as touchstones to, to, for the imagination. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you'd like to find out more about Jim Cuddy or Blue Rodeo, go to bluerodeo.com. You can hear all of Blue Rodeo's music on any of your favorite streaming services. If you'd like to comment on this episode, offer suggestions for future episodes, or just say hi, please email thecreationistpodcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to The Creationist and rate us on whatever platform you're listening on. And if I could ask one last favor, 
please share this podcast with any of your friends who you think might be interested. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast.